Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. I'm Vardamayan Ustrak, art critic of the Sunday Times, though you can call me Waldy because that's what my friends do. And I'm joined as always by the art historian and TV personality, Bendor Benji Grosvenor. Now the way this works is that I supply the brains in this podcast and Bendy supplies the beauty. So we're a match made in heaven, aren't we, Bendor? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling so beautiful today. I've washed my hair, especially for you. Oh, you do look, you do look great over there at the other end of the Zoom. Uh, <laughs> now, later in the podcast, we're going to be handing out more, yet more, of our prestigious Waldy and Bendy Awards, the Wendy's, this time for the worst museum website in the world. The worst, the very worst. So there's going to be blood all over the tracks, and you definitely don't want to miss that. First, though, the big news of the week in art, a topic we shouldn't try to avoid, and indeed we wouldn't want to avoid. I'm thinking, of course, of iconoclasm. It's been in the news around the world. It's in all the papers. So, Bendy, let's start with a bit of a definition, shall we? Um, what is iconoclasm and why are we talking about it? It's the destruction of mainly artistic objects, uh, either on religious or political grounds. It's been going on ever since the first uh, painting was put up on a wall or the first statue was put on a plinth. There's always been someone around to say, don't like that. Let's take it down. And this week, we've seen what will probably become one of the most famous acts of iconoclasm of recent decades, uh, the removal of the statue of Edward Colston, the slave trader from Bristol, who was uh, unceremoniously dumped into Bristol Harbour. When I first saw the news of that, when I first saw the clip, um, I have to confess my initial reaction was, oh, I'm not sure about that at all. It's someone smashing a statue. But the context of it immediately swung me round. And I don't know that deep down inside of me, the art lover can ever condone the smashing of any artistic object. But really, uh, I'm, I'm very glad it's gone. But what do you think? Well, I know what you mean about the difficulties, because I think in 99% of cases, um, iconoclasm isn't right. For me, um, it's something that I instinctively take against. So, you know, when when they started to knock down all the um, religious art in Europe and the Puritans had a go at it in, in the 1500s, I'm against that. You know, when the French revolutionaries started to knock the faces off Jesus Christ and Virgin Mary during the French revolution, I'm against that. Even when, when the suffragettes slashed Velasquez's Roque B. Venus, because it was a personal painting in a museum and shouldn't have been there for acts of politicism, I was against that. But I'm 100% for the knocking down of this statue in Bristol. I mean, they should never have put it up to begin with. There's been a campaign for some time to have it recontextualized at least. I mean, this is a guy that sent 100,000 people, plucked them out of Africa and sent them to, to the colonies to work as slaves. Uh, you know, he was a, a monster, a human monster. They shouldn't have put up the statue in the first place. And I certainly fought all the people that pulled it down. It, it's one of those rare instances where the, the politics of it far outweigh its importance as an artwork. And I have to say that I think there are things to be said about it as an art object, but the event was, was, was important in so many other ways. Uh, what, what I found so interesting about this moment, in fact, what I'm finding increasingly interesting about all political events for the last few weeks, is, is actually the response to it is in a way more revealing than the act itself. And this sort of cascade of, of hand-wringing and eye-rolling from the, uh, the people who were appalled 
at the event. As we both said, it's okay, I think, to be sort of instinctively appalled at, at the initial, uh, let's face it, violence of the act. But a lot of people are using that to try and justify keeping the Colston statue up and saying that we, we can't take it down because it's erasing history. Um, the point about that statue is it's sought to erase history in the first place. It's sought to erase uh, Colston's involvement in the slave trade. And I don't think anyone ever learns anything from history from a statue because a statue is, uh, is inherently political, isn't it? I mean, that's why iconoclasm happens most of the time, because statues, I think, are, are different from other works of art. We, we hold them up, we put them literally up on a pedestal, and they look down at us. And that is a political act. It is meant to make us feel either oppressed or admiring of that person. Statues are always a political conversation, aren't they? And sometimes the political conversation changes against the statue, and it has to come down. Of course, that's why there has been iconoclasm. I mean, nobody puts up a statue uh, in that circumstance for aesthetic reasons, you know, because mm. they want to make the place look beautiful. They do it mm. for other reasons. If you look at the Roman Empire, why are there so many portrait busts of Julius Caesar in the world? It's not because everybody loved Julius Caesar. It's because to mark out the territory of the Roman Empire, everybody had a Caesar bust. They did it in China during Mao Zedong's reign. There were portraits of Mao Zedong everywhere. Not because everybody loved Mao Zedong, but because it marks out the territory. And public sculpture of this sort is, is clearly a, a political yes. gesture. And the fact that the actual sculpture wasn't put up till, was it 1895? You know, right. A century after Colston committed his sins, it just tells you that it was a political act to begin with, um, you know, during a government and a period when, when Britain was reliving its sort of colonial time in great splendour. But you know what? A statue is not as important as a human life. It's that simple, isn't it? Mm. I mean, this guy sent 100,000 people to, to sla into slavery. He, he, he pulled them out. He paid and made money out of taking them out of their homelands in Africa and transporting them to slave labor in the colonies and the Caribbean. Every single one of those lives is worth something and should be valued. And to, to even suggest that a statue of this guy, who was a monster, that's what he was, he was a monster, that a statue of this guy is worth anything like the 100,000 people for whose deaths and unhappiness he was responsible is ridiculous. Yes. And the real enemies in all this are the authorities who have spent the last 30 years or whatever it is arguing about what to do with this sculpture. Because there's been protests about it for a long time, haven't there? And there have been suggestions to recontextualize it, to have a different text for it, to point out who this guy was. You know, I mean, everybody thinks he's a great benefactor. He starts schools and stuff. Well, that's what guilty people do. You know, that doesn't mean that it's, they're trying to buy their way to heaven, aren't they? At least to our appreciation. So no, I, I can't bear the thought of it. How could you not value a human life more than a statue? The protesters were absolutely right to do this, and it even looked like a kind of happening, didn't it, when it was occurring, a sort of happy or a perform piece of performance art. Yes, if it had been done by a performance artist in a slightly more legitimate way, we'd all be um, giving it the turn of prize, wouldn't we? Because it was a sort of beautiful you know, act. And here was a man who, who profited from people being shipped over the water and in many cases chucked overboard, uh, and there he was being chucked into the drink himself. Yeah, have you seen Banksy's suggestion for what they should do with it? Uh, I haven't. No, what is he Brilliant. Saying? They should absolutely do it. Banksy suggests that they, they take the statue out of the water, put it back on the plinth uh, in, in a form that looks like it's being toppled, and then create another set of statues or sculptures around it of people with ropes hanging from it and protesters pulling it down. In other words, that the statue becomes the moment when it's pulled down from the plinth, with, of course, a, a plaque that explains the situation. 
that's a brilliant idea. You'd get the original statue back, you'd have this new context for it, which explains it as a public work of art, and you'd have a Banksy, and Banksy's from Bristol, right? I mean, it's a win-win-win thing. Me, me and you, we should start a petition. We should start a, a campaign to make it happen. The Banksy solution. Waldy Bendy and Banksy. It's absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, that sounds fun. Can we be invited to the opening? I, I have to say, though, um, I would just want to pick you up on, on where you began the conversation, that in 99% of cases, iconoclasm is a bad thing. I, I'm, I'd probably push the statistic a bit further down because it seems to me that iconoclasm actually plays... Uh, quite a, a healthy, if that's the right word, role in art history. Um, every now and then you have to have revolutions, even against art, and it, it ha can have positive and lasting consequences. I mean, for example, British art, such as it is today, uh, owes a great deal to the fact that uh, during the time of the Reformation in the 1530s, we had this great iconoclasm, um, pulling down and smashing uh, religious art. Now, lots of that art, I'm sure, was very beautiful. But the fact from that point on, from the 1530s on, we were unable to paint God meant that we mainly spent our time painting ourselves. And out of that grew uh, Britain's sort of only real uh, contribution to global art history, and that is uh, portraiture. So, and ironically, of course, we've come full circle in the iconoclastic cycle is now that a, a portrait of Edward Colston has, has spurred the latest act of iconoclasm. So it, it does have long lasting and, and quite positive effects, wouldn't you say? Well, not in that case. No, I totally disagree with you about, about the positive effects of, of Henry VIII and, and, and the, you know, the, the destruction of the monasteries and everything that happened afterward. There was a terribly sad show that um, went, it was on in um, Tate Britain. Oh, I don't know, it must be, must be over a decade ago now. I think it was selected by Richard Deacon. And in it, they had the only surviving bit of a wooden crucifix from pre-Reformation Britain. Now imagine every single church in Britain, which had been a Catholic country for a millennium, every single one of those had the stuff inside them destroyed. And there's only this one poignant little bit of wooden crucifix left. I mean, it's the most tragic destruction of culture possible. So no, I don't agree with that. But I do agree that iconoclasm is a built into the fabric of art and that, and that in many ways destruction has been as important and as certainly as prevalent in art as as creation it is built into into the whole storyline isn't it i mean look, listen when, when who was the first iconoclast bendy who um i don't know probably the person who didn't like the that cave painting in chauvet i mean someone came along there, there's always someone there isn't it i mean actually you're not far from being an iconoclast because iconoclasm is a hop skip and a jump away from from taste, from criticism, isn't it? I mean, you're, the art critic is the, is the handmaiden to the iconoclast, aren't they? No, don't talk nonsense, <laughs> no, no. And, and you can dodge my question. Now, let's, I'll come back to me as an art critic. But first of all, who was the first iconoclast? It was Moses. Moses went up to Mount Sinai. He got given the Ten Commandments. He came down to, 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 to earth or down to the ground and found that the, the people were worshipping the golden calf. So he had it destroyed because they're believing in something else from what he wanted them to believe in. He destroyed the golden calf. So Moses, for heaven's sake, was the first iconoclast. So it is absolutely built into the system. By instinct, I'm not a destroyer. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who supports art, and as an art critic, I'm here for the, for the pleasure, for the joyride of it all. And, and you know what, just to go back for a moment to, to Edward Colston, there is a slight sadness in all this, in that, I mean, actually, this could have been a much worse sculpture than it is. As, as statues go, 
the chap who made it, John Cassidy, about whom I knew nothing until now, uh, although I have actually seen his work before because it turns out he made some statues in Manchester that I did know because I was at Manchester University. So he did the statuary at the John Rylands Library, which I must have passed a thousand times in my life. But I didn't know about him it, consciously. But, but he, one of the things, one of the tragedies of all this is that he made out of Edward Colston, this monster who murdered all those people, he made a rather sympathetic figure out of him. And, the, and, and as, as these sort of things go, it was quite a good sculpture. I mean, this Colston looking sort of soulful and, and with his head bowed. And, and, you know, you can imagine him as a kind of cultural hero. And indeed, that's one of the worst things about it. And, that, and that's what you said earlier on how the truth wasn't being presented here. This was a misrepresentation to begin with. But yes, poor old John Cassidy doesn't probably deserve to have had his work trashed like this. Mm. Um, so he's another victim caught up in, in the crossfire in, in these important social wars that we're going through. I'm mostly against iconoclasm. It's very rarely a good force, but I certainly agree with you that it's a prevalent force and it'll always be with us. And sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah. Colston sort of covers all the bases here because there is a funeral monument to him in a church in Bristol by uh, Ricebrack. It's a, it's a very beautiful marble sculpture. And there's a terracotta bust of him in, in the collection of Bristol Museum. Um, now, would we smash those up? They're, they're really fine works of art. And, and I would say absolutely not. But the key difference here is that uh, because those are the bust is in a museum. Um, it's it's not being sort of forced down people's throats in a in a public place, put up on a pedestal. It has context around it, um, and the church itself, or well, that has been uh, closed for some time. But precisely because of this issue, uh, visitors can't go to see it. But and you may say, well, that's a shame. But actually, it was step back even further. And we have to then reconsider the role of the church in slavery, because the reason Colston has that great monument in a church is that because for a long time, the church in England said slavery was a good thing and we should all join in on it. So this is, this is a moment where we have to shine a light on, on so much of British history and so much of what we hold dear to our values and culture. And we have to be absolutely frank about reassessing it. I agree with you. I, every single word you said there, Ben, absolutely. I mean, I, somewhere or other, I came across um, an article this week about the, the Doomsday Book. Um, 10%, 10% of the people named in the Doomsday Book in, in whatever it was, 10 something or other, were slaves. You know, this country has a history of that. Everywhere in the world has a history of it. And, and it's not taught enough and it's not something that's understood enough. And we should stop thinking of the numbers indeed. We should think of every single person who's been put into that situation. So... Um, these are dark times. I hope we've learned from them. Um, I think we've probably said our bit, haven't we? We should mm -hmm. move on. Um, but it will be interesting to see what, what happens next. Um, and fr from that serious and important conversation to um, something that's also serious and important, but not quite in the same way. Um, and I'm trying to think of an elegant way to go into the next part of our, our, our podcast here, which is the Wardian Bendy Awards, which is for the very worst museum website in the world. The Wendy and Bendy Awards. Yes, it's the Wendy and Bendy Awards, the Wendy's. Uh, and of course, everything that we're talking about here can be looked up and examined in depth in the Sunday Times, where the online pages of the Sunday Times give you all the pictures, all the information, all the websites, all the links you could possibly need to follow us in our journey um, through the terrible museum websites of the world. Now, last week we gave uh, the first of the Wendy's, the first Wardian Bendy Award for the best museum website. This week we're going the other way to find the very worst. 
uh, and I hand you over as always to the maestro here, um, our, our gang leader, uh, our matador when it comes to sorting out the wheat from the chaff, Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. Where, what are we doing and, and who are you accusing here? Well, Valdi, I've always wanted to be a game show host. I suppose this is my moment. Now, uh, I should explain the scoring system. Uh, you, uh, myself, and Taya, who, who we are dependent on for stitching this podcast together for us, we've looked at the, the website, the shortlist, um, and we've, we've scored them. Uh, and the, the website with the lowest number of points will come top as being our very worst website, if that makes sense. So in fifth place... Not the worst website in the world, but the fifth worst website in the world is the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. What do you think of, of that? Harsh or fair? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think it was a, it's a slightly confusing website because it's not just Uffizi. It's also the Pitti Palace, the Belbelli Gardens. Um, so you're not quite sure where you're going. But in the basic stuff that I want from a website, um, which is I want to be able to click on pictures and, and, and get good pictures of them, illustrations of them, plus decent text. Uh, I want a sense of um, other things happening on there. I want some little films. All of that, it does pretty well. I mean, the films are in Italian, but hey, you know, it's my job to learn Italian. I would have liked some subtitles, even though you've got a kind of British edition of it, but it's only the British edition on the first page that it goes Italian. But that's, that's, that's not their fault. Um, so yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it's good on the starstruck isn't the Uffizi great level. In other words, the most famous paintings are well handled. Um, there's a sense of, of, of amazing stuff there. Uh, it's a little bit confusing in some of its geography, but it's not as bad as some of the ones that, that are coming up in this. So um, yeah, I think, I think the least worst is a good position for it. Yes, it sort of it reminded me really of what they used to say on my reports at school, which was uh, could do better in the sense that if you think of how rich and how deep the Uffizi's collections are and also how gloriously they are presented in you know, places like the Pitti Palace. I mean, that's one of the, the places in the world, isn't it, to wander around and look at art. Um, I, I just didn't get any sense of that from the website, really. And I think they, they need to expand on their collections. There's no real collections database there. There's no sort of resource of scholarship. So. So um, revisit it, the Uffizi, and um, come back to us when you've made it better. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they can do better. I agree with you. It can be more flamboyant. It can, it can be more thrilling, more exciting. But it, it's not bad. Yes, not bad. Okay. So uh, in fourth place, we now have an entry from Britain. It is the National Portrait Gallery. See, I think that's too high for it. So you're saying that it's one of the least worst ones. I thought, I thought the National Portrait Gallery website was a complete mess. It angered me, to be honest. <laughs> uh, for a start, I mean, is it closed or isn't it at the moment? And we all know there's this, this, there's this confusion about the National Portrait Gallery being closed for three years, which is outrageous, by the way. You know, I'm so glad you think so. You know, stop rebuilding everywhere. You know, Beast, you are somewhere already. Just be that for a while. These crazy rebuilding schemes all the time. So it's it's. I think the actual museum is closed, isn't it? Although the website doesn't really tell you what's meant to be happening because I think it's meant to close in May or something like that. Yeah, it's not going to reopen. What I found really irritating is that that you go around to these various rooms there, and there's there's one section of it that says, you know, these are these early Stuart rooms and Civil War rooms. It's my period. I love the Civil War. I love early Stuart. You click on it. Then you end up at a, a sort of thing that's another search engine. You don't end up in a place. You end up with another thing that leads you to another place. Deeply annoying. 
Then I found a section about blog, a blog section, and I looked at the blogs on the Stuart and Civil War pages, and the last blog there was written in 2015. <laughs> that's not a blog. That's a, that's a historical document. <laughs> you know, they're not even keeping up with anything. But on the other hand, see, if you take all that scholarship, uh, that was done very badly. But on the other hand, all the modern stuff, they had the um, Duchess of Cambridge all over the place with this scheme to have people in to do pictures of the isolation and there's lots of stuff on family things and all that. You know, the whole, as it were, the, the, the art gallery equivalent of reality TV was all over the website. You know, all the new stuff and the, the actual scholarship that's needed to, to, to look back on the historical objects in the collection. That's what was thrown away. Um, so it's very confusing. The balance was wrong. A lot of it wasn't up to date, and uh, I hated it. Like basically, I, I hated most of it. Yes, technically, it's very clunky and old-fashioned, isn't it? It it feels like a website from about 2010. It is uh, patches, you say, on the historic stuff. I mean, if you go to um, NPG number one, the first painting in their collection, which is the Chandos portrait of William Shakespeare, and you get a pretty rubbish image and a paragraph of text, and then a blizzard of links to elsewhere. Um, you know, there's no sort of overarching video on why this is a fantastic portrait um, it's very poor offering but i think the reason for me why it's here on our list is that now this is an institution which as you say outrageously is going to be closed for the next three years at least while they rebuild the whole thing now the very least they can do if they're going to close the doors to it is to give us a decent website in the meantime and frankly this one is not up to the job Agreed. Let's move on. Didn't like it at all. <laughs> In third place uh, is, oh, another British offering, I'm afraid, again from London. It's the Serpentine Gallery. Oh, God, the Serpentine Gallery. Uh, I mean, it's the epitome of the triumph of style over content. Waffle, 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 waffle. You go there, you've no idea where you're going to end up. Every film actually sort of feels the same because it's the same kind of language sort of post-semiotic gibberish. And then the things that they, they do on there. I mean, there's this, there's this initiative called The Do It. Do you find those, Bendor? I didn't. I'm afraid I didn't get past a few clicks because it, it, it just overwhelmed me with rubbishness. Yeah. Well, The Do It's are this initiative where um, basically you get given a set of instructions by an artist. And the idea is that at home you go and you do it. So you make this artwork at home having got these instructions which is, I mean, it's mildly daft, but I mean, potentially quite entertaining, except that they're absolutely stupid, these do-its. The first one I came across said, behave like a dog. <laughs> well, woof, woof, you know, what, what, what is that about? There's another one where it said, cut off the tip of a cucumber and stick it on your forehead, and then cut off another tip of another cucumber and stick it on your lover's forehead. Well, I don't want to cut off cucumber heads and stick it on my forehead. It, it was just this kind of nonsense. And then there was this huge bit about, about global warming and this big initiative about ecological matters, which, of course, all of us support and want, and want to work. But, I mean, it, at no point was it clear what anybody was saying about any of this. Very confusing. For me, it would have been lower down the list than it is even. Well, we've got a couple of beauties to come. Uh, in second place, it is the Galleria dell'Accademia in Florence. What did you think of that one? I felt sad about it. Yeah, it's I, sad. I, I thought it was a terrible website. Um, it had almost nothing going on in it. There was a few sad little corners with a few pictures in them. Um, Michelangelo's great David was, was treated to, to the most miserly of appreciations. <laughs> but I gave it 
a lot more points than I gave the Serpentine because I felt sorry for it. You know, I mean, what this is, is an example of somewhere that's been starved of resources. That's, it's as simple as that, isn't it? I mean, you've got a museum that has not had any money put into the website and they've done the best they can. And within that, I think they've tried hard. And, and I, I would give them far more marks than these sort of overprivileged London galleries that have made a mess of it and keep spreading here, there and everywhere. But it was a sad little thing. The saddest thing of all for me was that when I tried to click on, on some of the artists I wanted to look up, the uh, search engine was uh, arranged uh, according to Christian names. So, so there were a lot of A's, but they all turned out to be Andrea and Agnolo. And you didn't even find out who Bronzino or Pontorno was. So it was incredibly difficult to use. But my heart went out to it. And, and in a curious way, I loved it in the way that you like the kind of weakest kitten in the bunch. Well, I thought it was very poor show. I don't feel sorry for it. I've, there is a sort of, uh, there is a strange assumption amongst so many Italian museums that they don't really need to bother with things like websites. I suppose it's because they're so used to vast queues outside the door. Perhaps they don't feel they need to reach out to a wider audience. Um, and if we compare it, last week we had the Louvre, which I know was, you know, not everybody's favourite choice, but the point was that, you know, within a couple of clicks, you were learning all about the Mona Lisa. Now, with the academia, really, you want to learn all about Michelangelo's David. And it, it, it seems to me that that gallery has a responsibility to present the statue to the world with a beautiful, uh, you know, high-res image and virtual tour and all that kind of stuff. So, so please, go away and, and rethink uh, so we can all be um, entertained in lockdown with Michelangelo's brilliance. We have, we have a wave here from Thea on the Zoom. Hello, Thea. Would you like to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to say when I looked at the, and now I tried to find it again on the website and I couldn't because it's so hard to navigate. But when I was poking about there, I, I saw they had a oh. take a selfie with David um, uh, sort of experience, which was supposed to sort of help you to not have to do that uh, when you were there for the queue and stuff. But um, yeah, it was really dumb because I tried to upload a picture of myself just to see how it worked. You were presented them with a picture of David with a phone basically in front of it so you couldn't really see the statue which you then would insert your picture into which was also quite clunky to be honest my picture ended up the wrong way despite being in the right format so okay i'm quite tempted though to go and have a oh, we should all go and have a selfie with david and now it is time for the crowning glory the world's worst museum website is it is tate you've let the world down you could you could have done so much better we were depending on you to keep us amused with all sorts of artistic brilliance and to highlight the wonderfulness of british art during the lockdown and you fluffed it see i didn't i don't think I, well i didn't vote it for as the worst of this bunch so you two must have really ganged up against it um, <laughs> uh, between you um it, it's not great um but it's a long way short of being the worst, would be my honest opinion. Uh, it's confusing because there are three or four museums all on there. You know, you're not quite sure if it's Tate Modern or Tate Britain you're looking at or, or Texan Eyes. Um, but the films they make are um, quite, quite effective. And some of them, uh, you know, although a lot of them are scrambled as well. Um, I quite like the kids stuff. I mean, there's a lot of it. Everywhere's got a lot of kids stuff on it because everybody's trying desperately to get younger audiences into the museums. But the kids stuff was quite was quite friendly. I mean, I did a quiz. Uh, there's a quiz there about you basically um, it's a kids quiz. And it said, which surrealist artist are you? 
and you get a bunch of questions, like seven questions, and you answer each one. And the questions are things like, if you were an animal, what would you be? If you whipped up a dinner, a, a meal for your dad, what would it be? And you sort of put in these answers. You've got multiple choice answers. And they end up, they tell you which surrealist artist you are, right? So I did all that and I ended up as Leonora Carrington. So I am Leonora Carrington, apparently, according to this little quiz. It was all right. Um, could it be better? Yes, of course it could be better. And what it could, ab above all, I think, have is just this, just a sense of the importance of art. You know, I mean, that's what I think so many of these museums are losing at the moment. They're losing a sense of their sort of cultural ballast, the, the importance of it, the, the, the meaningfulness of it. There's all this kind of frippery about sort of family meetings and things, which is all important. We all love our families. But we also will go to museums to, to get a sense of history, to be told something real, something serious. And for me, that's what's most missing uh, in this whole Tate experience. Uh, I think Tate fails abysmally on, on, the, on the main function of a museum website, which is to show good photos of the objects with some well-written text or information about it. And it, it's just given up. I think it's the best funded museum, art museum in the country, isn't it? The Tate, web, the Tate budget is about something like £100 million a year. And they've ended up with a website where you can only get low resolution images of anything because, of course, they like to keep their images to to sell uh, to books and, and mythical tea towel makers. So they don't let us, the punters who own the art, they don't let us see decent high-res images of it, so we can't zoom in on the, all the lovely details. And then when it comes to the text, the explanatory text, most of the time they just give you a link to Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia can be good, but it's a different website. It's no context of the overarching collection of British art. I mean, your, your favourite artist, Waldi, I think your favourite British artist is William Dobson, is that right? It, correct. Look at the Tate page for William Dobson. And it has a few photos, not very good resolution. And then it gives you a link to Wikipedia for if you want to learn about William Dobson and his place in British art. That's, that seems to me, you might as well not bother. At every meaningful moment of Tate's website experience, it's sending you somewhere else. You get better photos on, on Wikimedia Commons and you get the text on Wikipedia. So frankly, they may as well just take the website down because they're, they're giving up. It's always the scholarship. I mean, it's not about trying to tell people great information it's, it's about getting people in there you know getting people as soon as you get to the website you know there's things saying donate here donate there here's the shop you can buy this you can do that you know they're scrabbling around raising funds all the time instead of imparting knowledge um yes so i agree with you on that i suppose my only real argument is that i wouldn't have put it as the very worst but um, uh, everything you say is true everything you say is right i'm going to shut up because i think i'm talking far too much on this <laughs> Well, the, the, our second Wendy then goes to uh, Tate. So we've had the very best and the very worst, and we'll have to think of something to do for our awards next. Oh, there's plenty of things we can hand out awards to, but that's it. We've settled on the best museum websites and now the worst museum websites. We've handed out the Wendy's. And I will personally enjoy giving the first Wendy for the worst museum website to the, uh, the great directors of the Tate. Uh, when I get the occasion. But we need to move on because we're talking like crazy and there's a lot of podcasts to get through still. There's this important bit coming up now. On the Wall. Yes, it's On the Wall, the bit of the podcast we all look forward to because it's a chance for Bendor Grosvenor and myself to choose any artwork in the world that we want to hang on our walls during the great lockdown in our imaginary museum. So, Bendy, what have you gone for this time? Well, I've gone for a landscape. 
a, a plain and simple landscape around it because I'd be getting too overwrought with all the politics of the moment and, and art that's too full of meaning. I just want to choose a nice landscape that I can sit in front of, admire the details and go for a, an artistic walk. And I've chosen the picture of the Alps because um, last week I confessed to you that I'm a little bit Dutch, but I'm also a little bit Swiss. I'm a Swiss citizen. Um, so I've chosen the picture uh, looking into Switzerland of the Val d'Aosta uh, in the Italian Alps uh, by an artist called John Brett, painted in 1858. It's a really extraordinary picture. It's, it's very uh, detailed. You can tell the specific rocks and the trees and even the lichens on the rocks itself. Uh, John Brett was um, one of the pre-Raphaelites. He wasn't uh, one of the initial pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, but he was very much in the second wave. Uh, John Brett was an interesting figure. He was very interested in science. Uh, and his sister, Rosa Brett, was also a very talented artist. Unfortunately, because of the, the, uh, the strictures of the time, a lot of uh, her work actually had to be sold under her brother's name. So sometimes when you're looking at a John Brett painting, it's actually by his sister. But anyway, this was a painting that was made by John in 1858 when he went out uh, to the Alps uh, to paint this view. Um, and he was encouraged to do that by uh, one of your art historical heroes, Waldi, and one of my art historical villains, uh, John Ruskin, who uh, a couple of years earlier had published one of his famous books, uh, Modern Painters. And he said that for uh, before an artist could really paint a landscape, they had to absolutely understand how the landscape came about. And, and the key part of that was going out to the mountains and, and studying the rocks and the stones. So in the 1850s, a, a number of British artists dashed off to the Alps to paint them and study the, the geology. One of them was John Brett, and he painted this beautiful picture. Now, it's rather a sad story because when he brought the finished painting back to Britain and it was exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1859, uh, it was a bit of a failure. And it was a bit of a failure because uh, John Ruskin, uh, having encouraged Brett to go out and paint specifically this actual view and told him how to do it, uh, decided that it wasn't uh, quite up to scratch. He said it was a little bit too detailed, in fact. Um, and so the picture uh, didn't do particularly well. Uh, it didn't sell. It didn't even have uh, a single offer. Uh, so poor old John Brett was rather knocked back by this, and it didn't enter a museum, as I think it, it really should have done. It's now in a private collection. Eventually, the picture uh, was sold, however, for half the original asking price. And do you know who, who the buyer was? Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. No, John Ruskin. He bought it for half price, having been quite rude about it in the exhibition. So I think he was actually being quite canny. But poor old John Brett, I think we should all go online. Uh, there's a good photo on, on Wikipedia of the painting. You can blow it up and, and glory in all the details. It's a, it's a fine painting to look at and take your mind off the fence. It is, it is. Just to be clear then, so the guy that I have been supporting, John Ruskin, is the man who is responsible for this picture being painted. He sent Brett to the right place or advised him to go there. And we have this wonderful picture that you have chosen, the anti-John Ruskin figure, you have chosen as an embodiment of what you'd really like on your wall. Uh, Bendel, you're a very confused person. I mean, let's just admit that Ruskin did something marvellous here, and so did John Brett. Uh, and we'll move on in that, with, that, with that happy knowledge that you're coming round to understanding the importance of John Ruskin. That's not how I plan this to go at all, but anyway, let's move on. <laughs> That's how it's going. And, and since we're on twisty paths, see, I've gone, I can't, I can't disassociate myself in the way you can with art. 
I can't just do the pleasure. For me, everything's got to be about the world we're in. So I've, I've gone for a, a, a Joseph Boyce installation, which is called The Pack. Now, um, I saw it in Castle, uh, in the museum in Castle. There's a big exhibition in Castle called The Documenta, which takes place every five years, and it's a big summary of modern art. So like the most important conceptual and modern art that's being made gets shown there every five years. Um, and I went along to one a couple of decades ago, and, and I went to the local museum, and this was there. It's on permanent display. And it was such a powerful piece. I mean, what it is, it's, um, it's an installation. It's a, it's a VW camper van. And this was the era before VW camper vans acquired their, their current slightly sinister edge, by the way. Um, it was a VW camper van coming out the back like, like, a, like a stream of a comet, if you like, if you can envisage that. There's a whole bunch of sledges, and each sledge is, is got the same thing on it. It's got a, a roll of felt, a torch, some fat, and they're, ba- they're bound up and, and look as if they're sort of supplies that have been carefully presented by some kind of quartermaster. And it's a work about survival, really, um, and about the, the atmospheres of survival, about the kind of stripping life down to the basics. That's the, the, the big idea here, I think. And it's tied in with Boyce's own life story, this rather notorious myth of his that he was shot down during the Second World War when he was a Stuka pilot and looked after by, by Tartars somewhere in, in the middle of Russia, in the middle of Siberia. And they kept him alive by rubbing fat into his skin and wrapping him in felt. So fat and felt become these materials that he associates with survival. And that's what he's got on the sledges coming out the back of his camper van. And it's just, it's Boyce's best piece. It's incredibly eloquent in ways that are difficult to talk about, you know, in poetic visual ways. It, you know exactly what it's about without actually being able to say that. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, thing to see in Castle. So I, I would like that in, um, in my house at the moment, just to remind me of how seemingly eternal this damn lockdown is and how the only way to handle it really is take it a day at a time that's what survival consists of bit by bit step by step minute by minute just try and get through it that's my piece which i present to you vendor i think i remember seeing this i'm sure it's been in london at some point it was in the show at the Tate at some point yeah. yeah i was struck by it um i have to say during the lockdown i've been sort of dreaming of uh camper vans i've always wanted one of those actually um in fact the best holiday we ever went on as a family was a was a camping holiday a motorhome holiday um this is completely away from the point and i'm i'm losing your uh, profound artistic points here uh, but i do look at that now and think oh i'd love to climb in uh, fire up the vw camper and, and set <laughs> off for a nice um jaunt by the beach uh, so um yes but you've got it so you enjoy it Let's, let's, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what Ben, let's, let's wrap this up. I mean, we're both getting melancholy here. <laughs> but we'll get ourselves a VW camper van, the Wardy and Bendy camper van. And you know where we're going to go? We're going to go to the Val d'Osta. How about that? Yes. To the scene that John Brett painted. And we can look at the damn real thing at some point soon. How about that? Oh, I feel a TV series coming on. But, you know, I think we probably have to have our own one camper van each, wouldn't we? We couldn't possibly stay in the same one. <laughs> I'll have a little statue of John Ruskin in the front and you can have whoever it is that you love, Andrew Lloyd Webber in the front of the Bendy, the Bendy Mobile. Um, anyway, that's, that's far, far, far too much from us. We're going to call it a day on that. We've talked about lots of things and it's, uh, remember, you can see all the stuff, all the information, all the pictures on the Sunday Times website um, online. But from me anyway, it's goodbye for now. And I believe that from Bendor, it is also... Oh, cheerio. 
Woldy and Bendy.